Good afternoon or morning for some of you or evening. Um, I'd like to start with just one announcement. Um, uh, uh, first of all, does this sound okay? Okay, great. Thank you. Um, tonight, um, Gil will be offering a drop-in group for co-participants at 7.15. So check your schedule. The Zoom link is right on the schedule. <clears throat> so um, I'll be starting today with uh, talking about dukkha, um, suffering. Um, the cycle of liberative dependent origination begins with dukkha. Dukkha is often translated as suffering, but there really isn't one English word that really expresses the broadness of the meaning. Though I'll say in the late 60s, there was a word that came really close. Maybe many of you are familiar with the word. It's a bummer. Uh, someone would say, I got a splinter. The response was, bummer. I got a flat tire. Bummer. My wife left me. Oh, bummer. My father died. Bummer. So it comes close, right? You know, all the little things and all the big things. It covered all of it. We sometimes um, like to use the term unsatisfactoriness to refer to dukkha. It's a little awkward word, but it, but it gets to some of it. Might be closer. The meaning covers the entire range of unpleasant, unwanted experience. From our deep, deep mental anguish and physical pain, which is really easy to call suffering to frustration and discomfort, boredom, and just subtle feelings of, you know, eh, unease, being unsettled. The term dukkha comes from a time um, when people used to use uh, horse or, or ox-drawn vehicles. The Sanskrit refers to the word as a, the root of the word as meaning a bad axle hole. If the hole wasn't just right, it was a bad axle hole, and the ride would be bumpy and leading to discomfort. <clears throat> In the Second Noble Truth, uh, the Buddha said that the origin of dukkha is tanha, literally thirst, often translated as desire or aversion. The word points to the inherent craving to get what we want and avoid what we don't want. Our craving arises, whether it's for a material thing, like these days, a new device, a new chair, um, or for felt experience, like um, uh, longing for a long, hot shower when, like here in California, we have a drought. Um, or craving for an identity, you know, I want to be a great singer, I want to be a, a famous Dharma teacher. <laughs> um, or on the flip side, it's it's reversion to sickness, to injury, to loss, 
craving for them not to be part of our lives. And that gives rise to dukkha. The craving includes all the ways we resist or experience, all the ways we can't accept things as they are. The more we try to make things our way, the more stressed we become. The more we allow things to be the way they are, even though they're unpleasant, the more we find peace. And whenever we're not caught in reactivity, the mind naturally calms down. The cycle of dependent origination describes how dukkha is endlessly perpetuated. It describes uh, a cycle of compulsion to get what we want, avoid what we don't want. The first noble truth, dukkha exists. Um, I can't tell you how many retreats I've gone into uh, thinking that, um, well, I hope there's no dukkha here. <laughs> Not directly that way, but, but it, was, it was in my mind. In a certain way, it's the way I held it. I hope everything's really, really nice and full of sukha, you know, no dukkha. Um, that desire to get what we want and avoid what we don't want, it's similar to the way, to the compulsion of an addiction. We continue with the compulsion and obsession to just get what we want now and avoid what we don't want, even though they never satisfy us. They never let us be at peace. And yet we just keep doing it, and it perpetuates craving. It's kind of wired into us to do that. The process of liberative dependent origination is a description of a way out of the cycle, and it begins with dukkha. One way of uh, viewing this is when dukkha comes up, you can go two different ways. You can either perpetuate it, or we look for a way out. When we're not mindful, the habits of mind perpetuate confusion and more dukkha. When we're mindful, we're able to turn to dukkha and see it, understand it, and have enough space to say, I don't want to keep doing this. There's, there's got to be a way to free the heart. That moment of mindfulness is not a moment of dukkha. Even though the dukkha is there the next moment. But when we see that moment, that's actually the beginning of confidence or faith. The more we continue to meet dukkha intimately and wisely over and over again, the more confidence and faith can grow. And it's forward leading in the cycle that leads to liberation. Essential to working with dukkha is to recognize it. As I said, the retreats that I started just wanting to feel good only, um, I didn't realize there was dukkha in that. That inherently, in that just wanting to have a good retreat, there was this craving, 
not just for wisdom, not for freedom, but just I want it to feel good. So we often don't notice um, dukkha until completely caught. And after we've been perpetuating it for a while, um, maybe you've been like in a conversation, you know, that started friendly and you don't really know when it became an argument. Somewhere when you start clinging to being right, usually. Um, so it's, it's um, easy to miss. Informal practice, um, maybe we're so aversive to restlessness that we've opened our eyes to look at the clock. I think some of you have done that. And maybe several times in five minutes, um, you know, or just a nagging thought, how much longer, how much longer? I'll keep my eyes closed, but how much longer? Um, Forgetting that we have the option of turning our attention to the restlessness or to the aversion of restlessness. Being curious, what, what is this restlessness like? Uh, today, as the first day of retreat, um, I'm pretty confident uh, among all of you, there's been quite a bit of restlessness, quite a bit of some sloth and torpor, some of these things that we tend to not want. Are we being curious or are we pushing it away? Sometimes um, we miss an overall feeling of dissatisfaction or boredom that arises. And we turn to a fantasy instead of trying to get to know the dissatisfaction. How does dissatisfaction feel? How does boredom feel? You've heard the term, I'll die of boredom. You know, we don't like it. We don't like that feeling. We try to run away. Dukkha can be very obvious. Back pain. I hate it. Or I'm hungry. How much longer? But as the mind begins to settle, it gets subtler and subtler, but just as relevant. Dukkha is her companion and teacher until the end of the path. This is why we practice. The more carefully we listen to it, get to know it, understand it, the more we can let go of it. It's not a surprise that Dukkha shows up every single retreat. The teachings refer to three kinds of dukkha. The first one is dukkha dukkha, the dukkha of pain. This addresses the things we don't want, the unpleasant things in life, uh, the physical, mental, and emotional pain. The whole range of physical pain from a minor itch or tiredness to the severe pain of disease or injury. It includes mental and emotional pain. And again, the full range from minor frustration 
like being unable to thread a needle, to the grief and distress from the major losses in life. Nobody likes it. Nobody likes being criticized or rejected or abandoned. Nobody likes being sick. But the circumstances of our lives all include unpleasant experience. But those who are not in themselves dukkha dukkha. It's the aversion to the unpleasantness that's dukkha dukkha. It's not wanting it. Dukkha dukkha is the craving for things to be different than they are, which doesn't work. As the saying goes, when we argue with reality, we lose. We're all subject to injury, illness, old age, loss. The second kind of dukkha is viparanamadukkha, the dukkha of change, the, the dukkha of change, of impermanence. Whereas dukkha dukkha comes up in response to what's unpleasant, the dukkha of change happens in response to pleasant experience. It's the suffering caused by the fact that pleasant and happy feelings don't last. No moment is reliable because the next moment's always coming along. And it'll bring conditions that may take us away from our happiness. Even when we get what we want, it changes. It's a deep craving for the impermanent to be permanent, which isn't going to happen. When it changes, we might react with pain and happiness or disappointment. It's like a child with a new toy. They're delighted. Eventually, the newness wears off and maybe boredom follows. The best dessert, eat enough of it and you get a stomachache. Even if we just the right amount, eventually we experience the discomfort of hunger again. Nothing we do or think will bring lasting happiness just a temporary pleasure. I think most of us understand this, intellectually at least, but unless we deeply understand it on a much, much deeper level, we keep getting caught by it over and over again. We keep chasing pleasant experience, hoping that this time it will satisfy. But nothing impermanent can satisfy. Our lives tend to bounce back and forth between these two conditioned responses. If it's unpleasant, we say, go away. If it's pleasant, we say, please come, please stay. It's just the nature of human delusion to give us a feeling that things are lasting and reliable. A marriage, a job, a house, a government, or lives. And the third kind of dukkha is a dukkha that comes from momental formations or sankharas. The, and this tends to happen when um, our experience is neutral. 
the conditioned mental dispositions that arise when when nothing either you know pleasant or unpleasant is happening or tendencies for craving and aversion are just under the surface. It often doesn't take much to trigger them, to start worrying about the future or regretting the past, getting caught in judgments, shoulds, shouldn'ts, and anxieties, to give meaning to our experience, to get lost in our stories. Even if we're not clinging this moment, our mind patterns are conditioned and predisposed to cling soon. Many, um, many years ago, I was uh, weeks into a retreat and uh, went to dinner and very mindful, peaceful, connected. My mind was really still. When I got to dinner, I was just delighted to find out that it was Thanksgiving and that the managers, uh, the staff, they had set up an amazing spread for dinner uh, with tablecloths and all and little chocolates. Um, So I filled my plate. I sat down and uh, got up to go get a cup of tea. And then when I came back, I sat down very mindfully and gratefully picked up my fork to eat, my mind just very clear and stable. And I heard someone clear their throat inches from my ear. And he quite kindly, with an amused smile on his face, whispered to me, you're in my seat. And, um, and as I looked, you know, I looked at the plate in surprise and realized that I was not in my seat. And when the realization came, I saw suddenly the shame just arose among all that stillness, um, a painful, cringing feeling. And I saw it leave. And I saw that this habit of my mind to cringe if I make a mistake. I laughed uh, and went and found my seat. That mental formation that it's not okay to make mistakes was just under the surface. The way I think of it is, if I'm not at peace, there's dukkha. So there's something I'm not paying attention to. As we practice, our reactions to unwanted experience can get subtler and subtler, thinner and thinner. And the hindrances get subtler also. Maybe we have a subtle craving to have a profound experience. I've definitely had that come up on retreat or trying to control our experience or the discomfort of not knowing, a subtle fear, the subconscious things we might push away, 
or that clinging to a sense of self. I'm this way. Or doubt that we can be free. Or subtle feelings of this is, it isn't quite enough. Uh, I want more experience, a little more. The Buddha said, all I teach is suffering and the end of suffering. And the end of suffering can happen over and over again throughout our lives, throughout the many moments when we let go of clinging. Suffering is very different than insight into suffering. Dukkha is exhausting. It can be exhausting. But the insight into dukkha is wisdom. And the wisdom of understanding dukkha when it arises uh, gives the mind energy, strength, even in the face of very unpleasant experience. The insight into dukkha is wholesome. It's equanimous. It has no craving in it, no aversion. But we only get insight into it by meeting it, by turning to it, being intimate, showing up for it, which sometimes takes courage. And by befriending it, Shogyam Trungpa defined meditation as the continuous act of befriending yourself, like that. The continuous act of befriending yourself. When we see that grasp, when we see the grasping and the clip, and the clinging clearly. And when we're able to let it go, we can feel a relief, a lightness, the freedom from that. Even from a little tiny clinging, if you're paying attention, uh, you can feel a certain lightness when you let it go. Um, just think about a sh- tense shoulder. You know, you're holding on because you're concerned and you're worried. You go, oh, and you let it go. Ah, that felt good. There's always, whenever we let go, there's some sort of lightness, something lightens up. And each time we do this, the confidence grows. And then when confidence grows, gladness arises. And those are the beginning of the steps of liberative, dependent origination. A little bit of a mouthful. We don't create confidence. It comes, it just comes naturally when we say yes to our experience. It's not easy. And it's important to understand that we're biologically wired to move away from discomfort towards pleasant. It can be difficult to learn to tolerate discomfort. To be with suffering and not try to get get away from it, it's a natural tendency. 
but it's through intimately meeting dukkha and understanding that, that liberation is possible. It's hard to let go if you don't know you're clinging. There's a story that um, many of you probably have heard um, about the way they catch monkeys. They used to, they would catch monkeys in India using a coconut. They would make a small hole in the coconut, just big enough to, for the monkey to put its paw through. They would nail the coconut to a tree and fill it with something sweet. So when the monkey smelled the sweets, he would reach in and get hold of that sweet inside. But now he has a fist, and the hole is too small for the fist to get out. And the monkey's been caught. But of course, all the monkey has to do is let go. Nobody's holding the monkey except their own grasping. And that's even how we refer to ourselves often, right? We, we get caught our greed and aversion. And we just don't see that we can open our hands and let go. Even though we know we know this. Uh, that we have to accept dukkha to get to know it. We have the tendency to get trapped by the idea if we just fix this or that, we can avoid it. When I was um, about eight years old, I had a traumatic injury to my jaw and I, my joint and my jaw degenerated. And uh, when I first started meditating, um, I had pretty constant joint pain my jaw and watching my breath you know which was really close to the area just kept it really in my in my forefront it was like a constant reminder of how much it hurt I spent much of my sittings trying to find ways to avoid feeling the pain I tried turning towards the pain and feeling the details of my experience as I'd been taught which can be often a very skillful thing to do but my mind would just eventually just turn grim. I tried holding on to the breath for dear life, uh, hoping to concentrate the pain away, which would work for a short period. Uh, But finally, what penetrated was that I hated the pain. I really hated that pain, and I wanted to go away. It was much bigger for me, that hatred of the pain, and the actual sensation of the pain. So I started gradually, reluctantly, uh, connecting with the aversion to the pain, seeing the way my whole body seemed to be defending from it, and something in me relaxed. The pain never went away, but it no longer dominated my experience. You know, for... For anyone with chronic pain, I want to say this isn't meant to be the best way to address pain with meditation. Just what was useful to me at that time in my practice. And one of the things that's easy to miss is that 
or aversion to what's happening is often much more dominant than what's happening. What seems to be happening. To embrace dukkha as our teacher is really profound. We only pay attention well to what we respect. When we're able to meet it willingly and honestly, to meet the suffering that all living beings have in common, something in our heart connects with it. It softens and compassion can arise to naturally let go clinging. It helps create the tender environment, the compassionate heart that allows the liberating insights into dukkha. For the freedom that can come from meeting dukkha without reservation, at any reservation. Ayakema once said that dukkha can be our best teacher. It won't be Um, It won't be persuaded by any pleading of misery to let us go. If we say to a retreat teacher, I don't feel well, can I go home? They would likely say, oh, I'm very sorry, feeling bad. Of course you can go home. But if you say to Dukkha, I want to go home, Dukkha says, oh, that's fine. I'm coming along. So the, the only way to say goodbye to it is by letting go for clinging and grasping. We get fooled so easily because life has so many pleasant experiences. We just keep thinking if we could get the good things going, Dukkha would never come again. And we keep trying over and over again to make it happen, even though we know better. It will go away. So any moment we're not at peace, we can say, Hello, welcome to our teacher, Dukkha. And when we do this, we're touching upon the third noble truth. There is an end to Dukkha. And I'd like to um, end with a quote from the Udana. Whatever happiness is found in sensual pleasures, And whatever there is of heavenly bliss, these are not worth one-sixteenth part of the happiness that comes with craving's end. Thank you.